Good morning, everyone. Those of you who don't have children under five probably think it's incredibly early in the morning. Those of us who do think it's about midday. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. I'd like to welcome you. I'd like to particularly thank our event partners today, Friends Provident, the Sunday Telegraph, and indeed the ABI. Um, I, before I hand over to Patience, a couple of things. The first is that now that he is the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, James Pennell has suddenly lost all interest in talking about pensions, not surprisingly. And whilst the DWP have not been able to field Peter Hayne or Mike O'Brien, I must say I rather understand that the short notice may have had something to do with that. But what we are asking them to do, and I'm sure we will continue to lobby them to do so if they don't uh, do it of their own accord, is to listen to the podcast. This event is live and on the record and being podcast as we speak. And we will ask them to blog their responses on Editorial Intelligence's Zeitgeist blog. Um, another note for those of you who don't know editorial intelligence, I will tell you very briefly that what we concern ourselves with is what we call the commentariat. People like Liam, people like Patience, people like David in a former life. And we think that there's a very clear correlation between policy and policy making and the increasingly important media opinion formers. And I did a bit of research on our database this morning because we read and digest uh, every line of comment published in the UK. And between the first six months of this year, there has been uh, rounded up 500 articles about Gordon Brown, 300 or so pieces exclusively about private equity, 300 or so pieces exclusively about Iraq. But when it comes to pensions, they have garnered almost as much as the pieces on health and education around about 100 to 150 pieces each. That's bylined mainstream commentators in either the financial pages like Liam or in the main op-ed pages. So to say that the issue is hot and has resonance is an understatement. So I'm going to hand over to Patience, who will guide you through it. Patience is in her second year now editing the Sunday Telegraph. Um, I suppose one ought to be impartial when in introducing chairs, but it's difficult not to be a a pretty huge fan of Patience. She's uh, an extraordinary journalist, greatly award-winning. She transformed the Times's coverage of city and business issues, and she's going to keep us all to order. So, Patience, thank you. Thank you, Julia. It reminds me why one gets up at this stage in the morning. It's to hear your obituary in advance. Thank you. Um, I guess we're all here to talk about pensions because... It affects us all. Julia ran through the, the list of topics that the commentariat had been commenting on, but actually pensions are something dear to all our hearts because at some stage, I guess, whether we carry the saga carrier bags or not, we're looking forward to enjoying an old age which doesn't involve too much work. The topic today, can governments be progressive with pensions, is one which is wide open to debate. The evidence so far is that they can talk progressive rather better they, than they can do progressive. Gordon Brown is certainly aware of the issue. How can he fail to be so? In fact, 
research shows that although the public believe, on the whole, that Mr Brown did a great job of managing the economy over the last ten years, the one issue that the commentariat perhaps have got through to people on is that the public generally blame him for the pensions debacle. The idea that he took five billion out of, pub- out of pensions and continued to do so every year has actually stuck. So for those of you who write, it's, I think, comforting to know that if you repeat something often enough, the message does get through. So he, he is the man who stole pensions as far as, as people are concerned. And we've got here four people with very different points of view on pensions, but some common ground as well. I hope we'll have some fantastic debate. We're going to start off by inviting each of our panellists to talk for five minutes, and then we'll move on and have questions from the floor. Our first speaker is Jeremy. Jeremy Ward, who's head of pensions at Friends Provident. He's responsible for all the marketing of pensions, product management, and communication, which, when it comes to the issue of pensions, isn't always easy. He's developed, as you'll see from the biography here, the new generation pension system, which I'm sure he can explain. Um, It's simply a matter of making it easier for people who buy group pensions to understand what they're doing, and that can be no bad thing. He's a member of the ABI. He knows a huge amount about pensions, but I hope he'll talk in language that even those who don't necessarily understand pensions in the same depth will grasp. Jeremy, five minutes. The question for debate this morning is, can governments be progressive on pensions? So I guess the first thing to perhaps do is to say what I think we mean by being progressive. What would be progressive? Well, I think it's taking measures that will improve society in the long term, or to be brave enough to do what must be done, as opposed to a lack of big-picture thinking or maybe short-termism in decision-making, perhaps putting electoral popularity above the long-term good. That would not be progressive. And a good example of this, as I thought about maybe where, where we could find some examples of past progressive thinking, was Lloyd George's introduction of the first UK non-contributory pension plan in 1909. Um, That was five shillings a year at age 70 for men and women. Um, That, I think, could absolutely justify the label of being progressive, progressive thinking and progressive action. And I struggled then to think of any other examples. Um, (laughs) I thought about the state-owned-related pension scheme introduced in 1978. Well, that turned out to be too costly. I thought about stakeholder pensions. Well, they may have looked progressive at the time, but actually they did a job in terms of reducing the charges on pension schemes across the market. There were some benefits there. But in terms of bringing new people into pension saving or creating new pension saving, they actually did hardly anything at all. And how about personal accounts? Well, it's early days for personal accounts. I think they're possibly a disaster waiting to happen. So I believe there have been few examples of truly progressive government thinking, government action on pensions. Um, Then we may ask the question, why do governments need to be progressive on pensions? Um, In the past, we've had in the UK relatively low state pensions benefits, but they were topped up by our world-beating private pension provision. But these schemes have taken a severe knocking over recent years. Um, In 2005-2006, 
a full 44% of work-age employees were not saving into pensions. Quite a frightening figure. And that's a rising figure as well. So things are going in the wrong direction. And in fact, the statist- those statistics themselves conceal some, um, some even more horrifying facts. We, we're moving towards two-tier provision, in fact, in the UK. 58% of those in private sector employment are not saving in a workplace pension, compared to only 15% of those in public sector who are not saving into a pension. And when you dig into the statistics a little further, quite horrifyingly, of the private sector employees aged 18 to 29, the next generation coming through, a massive 75% of them, three-quarters of them, are not saving in a workplace pension. Um, There really is a crisis building up there. Meanwhile, we're all living longer, good news in many ways, bad news perhaps in pension terms, and the basic state pension continues to decline in real terms. Um, Pension, the Pension Policy Institute did, did some research and they found four problems with the current state system. It generates unequal outcomes. Um, women and carers are particularly disadvantaged by the current system. It's highly complex. <coughs> Anybody who tries to learn anything about pensions will soon find that it is, it is a highly complex system. It's unsustainable and it places too high expectations on private savings. Now, the government planned to address the pension crisis um, by taking a number of actions. They plan to improve the state pension, and they plan to boost private savings by automatically enrolling all employees into personal accounts. But I believe the state system reforms do not go far enough. They don't actually solve any of the problems completely, and they don't solve the means-testing issue. Um, So individuals will still not know whether it's in their best interests to save through personal accounts. Um, Means testing is going to be a big factor, I think, encouraging people to opt out of personal accounts because there's going to be at least the possibility for for, for many people, I should say, not most people, of being no better off if they do save than if they don't save. And there'll be confusion over which category people fall in. Are we getting there? Um, be, there are other reasons why people are locked out. Distrust of pensions, distrust of government, and high levels of personal debt all add to the thing. The two top reasons people give for saving are they don't earn enough, 38% of people say that, and other commitments, too many debts and bills, etc. I believe over 60% of people could actually opt out. Um, the New Zealand government have just introduced a Kiwi Saver account, um, and they believe 75% will opt out. So, in fact, is the government offering a a progressive solution to the pension crisis? I suggest not. Perhaps a truly progressive approach, a real long-term solution, would be to introduce compulsion. Now, politicians are naturally concerned about this because they think it may just be seen as another tax, but there does appear to be some public support for compulsion. Many people seem to recognise they'll never save enough for a comfortable retirement unless they are forced to. Of course, there are many pros and cons with compulsion and many different forms it can take. Um, But I believe the government does need to be brave and engage in a real debate to act on this before it's too late. (coughs) Companies in the pensions industry, such as Friends Provident, have tried to be as progressive as they can, but within the regulatory framework, that's all we can do. The pension crisis needs to be tackled by politicians because only they can provide the progressive framework that will be needed. Jeremy, thank you. And a very strong message there that compulsion 
is the answer. Um, of course, if you are an organisation like Friends Provident and you hear that uh, only 58% of people are saving into private sector schemes, it's jolly worrying. I can understand that. But we do need to do something. Compulsion, is it the answer? Liam Halligan says here, and I'm certainly not going to disagree with it, one of the UK's leading business journalists. Liam joined the Sunday Telegraph as economics editor um, a year ago. He's fantastically hard-working, um, a real campaigning journalist, I think. He's won stacks of awards. I won't bore you by listing them all here. <laughs> but if you'd like a word with him afterwards, he'll tell you. Um, but not just for, for newspaper journalism. His documentaries have actually been award-winning too. And unlike most award-winning doc documentaries, they have been on the subject of pensions. Liam. Thank you, Patience, uh, and to Julia and to our, our sponsors. Um, I will stick to five minutes, of course, um, and I'll trim my remarks, really, to fit in with what we've just heard. It's pretty daunting as a journalist um, writing and broadcasting about pensions, uh, and looking around the room now, I see many uh, experts, friends, colleagues, uh, adversaries in this field, um, but it is actually true that very few people who understand the details of pension policy understand the big political picture. And it's true that very few people who understand the big political picture understand any details. It's also true that the pensions debates are deeply entrenched and bunkered and clan-riven. So there are very few people who actually talk to people who disagree with them and in that context, journalists, I think, have a role to play, to say it as they see it. I'm going to briefly outline my thoughts on means testing, uh, the first part of Turner, the second part of Turner, and compulsion. I think it's really hard to say that the government is being progressive on pensions when you look at the huge expansion of means testing that we've seen. Of course, it's uh, completely obvious that means testing... Um, a lot of pensioners find it deeply undignified. It leads to a very low take-up of pensions benefits, which, of course, is deeply unprogressive. People aren't getting the benefits in old age that they've paid for. The government's two white papers last year, both of them the biggest reforms since Beveridge, apparently, said that means testing would be cut from 50% of all pensions at the moment to 33%. I'd like to believe that. I don't know anyone outside the Treasury who actually does believe it. Um, and it's very hard to get a handle on it, honestly, because, of course, in an unprecedented move, the Government Actuaries Department was excluded from making those projections, which I think was uh, a pretty incredible thing to do. It's my view, and I think the view, again, of almost everyone outside the Treasury, that this explosion that we've seen in means testing has added mightily to the big drop we've seen in the savings ratio. 11% in 97, 6% last year. We now hear it's between 2 and 3%. Those figures will be revised that came out over the weekend. But astonishing that just when we've got the demography that we have got, that this generation is saving so little. As Jeremy said, 12 million people saving little or nothing in retirement. That sounds to me like a crisis. The government's response, of course, is the Turner report, three years of uh, deliberations. Turner 1 is, of course, the increase in the basic state pension, which is designed to address this means-testing problem to a degree. 
Uh, most of the public thinks the basic state pension is going to be increased, uh, but of course there is no firm commitment to that, as we all know. Um, the wording of the legislation is um, completely open to, uh, shall we say, uh, manipulation. Uh, we think the basic state pension will be uprated with earnings by 2015, but we're not sure. Turner wanted an increase by 2010 to secure the reduction in means testing going forward that he wanted. If you delay it for five years, given the way the demography works, that's pretty serious. If you don't increase the basic state pension at all, then obviously Turner falls to pieces, um, and that's pretty unprogressive, if you ask me. The second pillar of Turner, of course, is the National Pension Savings Scheme, and I was very interested to hear Jeremy on that. Now, I really want the National Pension Savings Scheme to work. As an economist, when I look at the demography we face, I really want more people in the population to be beneficiaries in their old age of funded, invested pensions that are made up of compounded interest and investment returns rather than simply having to pay for them out of current taxation. That will simply be impossible in 20 or 30 years. The state will have to renege on its pension commitments. There will be social unrest unless we get more and more people into funded pensions so they benefit from compound interest. Even if they don't understand compound interest for most of their adult life when they're not bothered about their pension. Will the NPSS do that? Well, I simply don't think that it will. Under the cloak of anonymity, an incredible survey from the Association of Consulting Actuaries, which came out about a month ago, said when fund, when employees, 330 employ, employers, sorry, with uh, 2.1 million members in their pension schemes and £127 billion worth of assets. When they were asked if the NPSS would lead to levelling down, and we all know what that means, 68% said yes. It's a pretty incredible number. When these leading pension-providing employers were asked, would the NPSS lead to the closure of more good schemes, 76% said yes. Now, you try as a journalist getting a leading employer to say that on the record, and they won't, because, of course, there's a culture of fear in this area, as we all know. An even more worrying prospect for the NPSS is that the very target group that we're trying to focus, the 8,000 to 30,000 pound a year workers, will be ushered off the scheme by their employers because then the employers won't have to pay their contribution. This is the elephant in the room. This is what we're refusing to acknowledge. But it strikes me the fact that that will happen to this vulnerable group, the very people we need to save, is as obvious as it is difficult to police. So I'm afraid, in my view, there is no choice but compulsion. On which note... I will thank yeah. you for your five minutes, Liam, and beyond. Um, compulsion, again, the, the call there, um, and the elephant in the room, in that there are so many people who won't be able, can't afford to save at the moment. And with the savings ratio now down, as Liam said, to the lowest in 50 years, that's a terrifying prospect. But, of course, people are, as we all know, regarding their housing as their savings, as their pension. Maybe that's an issue that uh, David Freud, our next speaker, might like to touch on. David is an unusual being, a former journalist on the FT and author who moved into the city 
and has now moved into the charity sector, which is, as I say, very unusual. He's working with the Portland Trust, trying to do what our former Prime Minister wants to do and establish peace in the Middle East. I'm sure we all wish him luck with that. By comparison, the pensions issues are doddle, David. Um, mm. How are you going to sort that out? I think I'll try and give you an answer. I don't think I'll try and sort it out. I, I think, um, I mean, the question is, can the governments be progressive? I think they can be progressive in some areas, uh, but I think actually there's some other areas that probably are the most important ones that it's almost impossible for a government to sort out. Um, w- w- just look at the three areas. Uh, we've been spending a lot of the time speaking about the state pension provision this morning. Uh, the other two areas are the private pensions, and the one that, that uh, I think is the most worrying one and the most insoluble one are the publicly funded pensions. That we're, they're all suffering from the one issue. The one issue is that we're living longer, uh, but we still want to retire at the same age or actually we want to retire rather earlier than we used to. And there are only four solutions. Uh, we can work longer, uh, and there's some moves there, the retirement age, after a rather long period going up to, to 68. Uh, we can save more, and we've been talking about whether the state needs to compel people to save more. Um, that we, can, uh, we can have smaller pensions, and uh, we're beginning to see some of that coming through with more poverty. And finally, we can have uh, higher taxes, which, which, is, um, which is the classic OPM, other people's money, make other people pay for our lack of pension. And those are the only four solutions. And, and I thought it would be quite interesting just to go through where we are with each, with each of the, the three types of pension. Private pensions... Uh, it's, it's, as we all know, mainly a, a funded structure. Um, the promises have actually been sharply reduced um, in, in the majority, I think, of pension funds now have moved from uh, defined benefit to defined contributions, particularly for newer people. But actually, it's interesting. I was just um, doing a little research um, on this, and we've all been fussing around about the deficits, um, according to the NAPF, the latest, it's, the deficit is now down to 2%. As this boom, stock market boom goes through, actually, we don't have a problem uh, in, in, in the private pension market. Um, companies that do have deficits are actually dealing with them. We've seen BA dealing with theirs. And so you've got 800 billion of funded pensions, a very small deficit. Um, and there are some signs in the private sector that people have worked out they're going to have to work a bit longer. Uh, and the age discrimination legislation clearly helps with that. So notwithstanding uh, the way we all enjoy fulminating against uh, Gordon Brown's uh, uh, raid on the pension funds, um, actually we don't have a huge crisis. I mean, he's, he's, he's got away with it. Or well, the stock market at the moment uh, has learned to get away with it. The state system's rather different, um, 6% odd of GDP, unfunded, um, and uh, it's costing us $90 billion a year, and if we put the earnings link back as a nation, we could be looking at um, that rising in today's money by about 50% by 2030 and by uh, more than double in, um, in, in 2050. Um, 
We've been, what we're doing with that state pension is, is effectively reducing its real value by the pricing versus earnings link. Earnings link may go back 2015, although as you can see the figures, extremely expensive to do. Uh, and um, there's been some attempt here, uh, albeit years and years and years away, to make us work a bit longer to 68. Uh, and some talk, we've been talking, I won't spend a lot of time on the compulsion issue. Um, so what we're looking at here is a bit of everything. You know, the pension is not so generous. Maybe we're going to have to save some more. Maybe other people will have to, uh, you know, pay some extra tax. Um, and and it's beginning to look like the pension system is becoming a bit like the um, the, 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 the um, support system for people who are for you know for the benefit system. It's 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 a basic support. It's nothing. It's nothing that's going to keep anyone in any kind of uh, keep anyone out of poverty. Now let's go to the, th- the third sector, the public sector. Um, that's the bit that the government did not tackle in two thousand and five. Um, and um, and it, w- it doesn't even it hasn't even really tackled working late. I mean, a little bit of talk about people who come in uh, new entrants may 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 be asked to work a little bit longer. And the figures are utterly horrific. Uh, the seven top groups um, are 720 billion of unfunded liability. And I've seen figures, uh, there are figures around saying that the, the whole of the unfunded liability is a trillion uh, sterling. Um, IEA forecasting the cost of that to be 76 billion a year. So we're going to move very quickly to finding that becoming a rather substantial chunk of our GDP. Those systems, index linked, final salary, many of them, low age, I think still 60. Um, <coughs> Um, involved, all of that paid for by tax. Now, that would seem to be the um, crisis, the elephant in the room to me. Um, and, and it's very interesting to ask, why have we got this problem? And I don't think it's just about the threat of public sector strikes, which is what you know, was, was moot in 2005, although clearly that is a threat, but we've had strikes before. And, and face things down. I think we're actually looking at something very different. I think what we're looking at is, is another front in the new big battle of the generations. Um, you know, the, 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 the battle that we all know about is the way that most of the people in this room have all got nice houses and their kids can't afford to buy it. Um, uh, the, you know, as the baby boomers grab all the assets. But I think this, uh, you know, they grab the education assets. I, I suspect we all got free education, our kids don't. Um, and I think the, fa- the final thing is this pension for the, for the public servants. Um, and the trouble is that all of those people vote. Uh, I, I've seen statistics that say that they're four times as likely to vote as the young, younger generation. So it's extraordinarily difficult for a government to uh, launch uh, an attack on uh, uh, the older generation, voting generation, on behalf of the people who will pay those incredibly large taxes uh, to fund their retirement. So I think the government's going to find it very hard to be progressive, and I think we will all suffer. Because a friend of mine actually advertised in the Lonely Hearts column. Um, He didn't look for a, a blonde... He didn't even look for a good sense of humour. All he was interested in was that she had a public sector pension. But, you know, you have to take care about these things. The prospect of a trillion debt there, coupled with the trillion debt that credit card users and so on have 
uh, notched up in the last few years shows the burden as a country that we really are taking on without acknowledging it. And I think you're absolutely right to spell it out. Um, Obviously, the questions will deal with that later. But now our final speaker this morning, and it's not often that one has the opportunity to introduce a genuine heroine, um, Ros Altman, who has campaigned fearlessly on pensions to the extent that having once been an advisor to the Prime Minister on pensions, her campaigning has now had her lose that title. As far as number 10 is concerned, she's become a bit of a non-person, which I think is just a tribute to the fact she has so fearlessly called out for what's right on pensions. As you'll see from the biog, she started off as an academic, worked in the city, is now a consultant on pensions, but she does believe in fighting for what's right. Roz. Thank you, Patience, and good morning, everybody. Uh, I would like to just start, if I may, by asking the question, what is a pension? Because I think if we're going to consider progressively the issue of pensions, perhaps one needs to discuss the framework. And from my perspective, I think there is an awful lot of confused thinking about pensions. And if we just boil it down to the basics, there is a social welfare aspect of pensions, which was the original idea, which is a state role that pays you enough so that you're not begging on the streets when you can't any longer work. There is another aspect to pensions which then grew up over the last century which is basically long-term savings which is a private sector role and I think part of the reason that we have this whole confusion of thinking around pensions revolves around the role of the employer and the original social welfare role of pensions was then transferred to some degree from the state or shared with the state by benevolent paternalistic employers who wanted to reward workers who came off the land into their dirty factories, worked for their whole lives, and then genuinely were basically unfit to work anymore. And what we've had, I think, is a continued confusion between what the state can or should do and what the individual can or should do. And a lot of that tension has been taken up by employers. So that from originally volunteering to take on the social welfare role that the state would normally provide, and in other countries genuinely it does provide, British employers particularly took on this social welfare role via final salary pension schemes. But as that moved on through the years, the employer started to also use those schemes as a way of helping people to save throughout their working life, to have more than just the basic social welfare when they retired. And what we now have is a government policy that is predicated on employers, and if there isn't an employer, the individual, taking on a lot of the responsibility for providing long-term savings. 
And government policy was originally designed to cut state pensions while at the same time ensuring that private pensions flourish. And we actually did build up a tremendous retirement savings culture in the UK. Over the last 10 years, that has been destroyed. And that's, I think, for me, the heart of what we are trying to deal with. We had a culture of self-reliance and thrift, or perhaps also reliance on the employer and thrift. We have now moved and are continuing to move to a culture of dependency and debt. And the classic example of this confusion of the employer role in both providing social welfare and a long-term savings vehicle, and the government's reliance on that, for me, is the 125,000 people who saved all their lives in an employer pension scheme which the government told them they could rely on, where the government said it had put in measures to make sure it was completely protected and that they would be able to rely on the pension they were promised. But those very protection measures, the laws that were introduced, have actually resulted in taking those people's money away from them and giving it to others so that they have been left with nothing. And faced with that, this government, unlike any other previous government, has said, tough, hard luck. We know maybe that we said your, your pension was completely safe and you could rely on your employer to provide it for you. But actually, we didn't mean it. And you should never have thought that we meant it. And that, perhaps more than any of the other scandals we've had, and when you look at the surveys, has actually epitomised the destruction of the confidence that people used to have in pensions. And unless the government takes on responsibility for rebuilding that confidence and trust in the value of long-term savings, perhaps in the value of the employer intermediating in those long-term savings, I don't believe that we can ever really re-establish the confidence and trust that we need to ensure long-term savings. And in particular, I think the pension credit introduced by this government as part of the state pension has been the worst thing that could happen to pensions from the state perspective. The pension credit undermines the value of private savings and also the value of keeping on working past state pension age. So that what you've got now is actually a non-contributory pension that you will get from the state of around £120 a week. You never need to have worked for that. You never need to have contributed to that via national insurance. You get that. You come in from overseas. You're over 60. You will get £120 a week pension credit. However, in order to get that £120 per week pension credit from the state, if you've saved during your working life or you keep earning the government will take at least 40% of whatever you have saved or whatever you earn away from you to get you up from this contributory state pension, the basic state pension, which is actually only about £90 a week. This policy is bonkers. It cannot be sustained. The state pension is undermining private pensions 
I think one thing that would be very helpful is to rename this thing called private pensions. And the only pension should be what you get from the state. If you really want to think progressively, call private pensions something else, long-term savings. But before you can do any of that progressive thinking, I honestly believe that we have to, as a nation, properly compensate the people who saved for decades in a pension scheme and ended up with nothing and are being left high and dry with spin but no action. Thank you very much. On that note, I'd just like to bring in the audience here because the issue that Ros has raised about the 125,000 people who have lost their pensions is a huge one of trust, I think. And the parliamentary ombudsman said the government should compensate. The courts said the government should compensate. And the government said, no way. And I'd just like to see whether people here feel that the government's wrong. Should the government compensate 125,000 people who put their money into, shall we call them long-term savings schemes rather than pensions, but thought that their money was safe because they had been led to believe by documents and publicity put out by the government that it was? Can we have a show of hands? Should they compensate? Thank you. Is there anybody disagreeing with that? Well, I think in our podcast that we send over to the new minister, uh, there's quite a strong message there. Unanimously, this audience <coughs> thinks that these people deserve compensation. So keep up the fight, Ros. Right, lots of issues there. Um, obviously, we all know there's a problem. David says it's particularly a problem for the, the next generation, and I think that's right. Um, perhaps those of us on the panel should thank our lucky stars that we were born when we were. Um, compulsion, another issue that's cropped up. Let's hear your questions. Um, but if you could all tell us who Michael, you are Michael and Johnson. From. I run uh, one of David Cameron's policy groups, uh, including the one that's looking at pensions. Um, the word compulsion for many people is spelt T-A-X. Um, second pers- perspective which I'd like to introduce is ISAs. Actually, if we tried to keep life extremely simple, if everyone just had an ISA and put aside between 750 and 1,000 pounds a year starting at the age of 30 or 35, then in a generation the need to means test will disappear, by and large. There's always exceptions. Um, third point is perhaps aimed a little bit at Liam in terms of communication. One of the, the illustrations that we've tried to develop in our little shop is to do with means testing and how we illustrate the damage it does vis-a-vis the personal account, proposed personal account. If one takes an example of two individuals, A and B, where A saves responsibly from, shall we say, 35 or 40 years old, and B does not, and B is a low earner in that sort of 10, 12, 14, 15,000 pound arena, But when B gets to retire and is eligible for a form of means testing, he'll get about £30 a week for the rest of his life. Now, if you PV that, that's about £30,000. Investment risk-free. A, who's been saving in the meantime in his personal account, is very unlikely to have accumulated something like £30,000 pot at the time that he retires. And therefore, relative to to B, has no incentive whatsoever to participate in the personal account, which I think is a conclusion that most people have arrived at. But that, is, that, that 
little illustration of A and B is something that we've been trying to drive. I'm afraid that's not a question, that's an observation. Um, the question is this word progressive. What is the progressive, actionable idea from each of you? Very interesting question, thank you. Uh, before we ask the panel to answer that, um, could you tell me whether your pensions commission, for Mr Cameron, is looking at public sector pensions as well as private? Yes, I could tell you. And the answer is... The question is, is whether I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of my other working groups is called Public Sector Effectiveness, and we have written our views about public sector pension in there. For those who are interested in the public sector uh, pension question, I would recommend absolutely the work that Neil Record put together probably a year or so ago now where this trillion number approximately comes up. Um, one of the panellists mentioned the, uh, the politics of the public sector. I have been encouraging our, uh, Mr Cameron to put his head up above the parapet on this and so far, for fairly understandable reasons, it's not really appeared. But the, the working groups that we have are independent of shadow cabinet and they have said what, what I believe... Reasons? I'm sorry? What are those reasons? What reasons for what? For not that he hasn't put his head above the parapet. Because we're looking at a situation where a fifth of the workforce, only a fifth, will be taking up as much money by 2040 as the NHS currently takes up for their feather-bedded pensions. I, I so what are the reasons? I, I, think the, I think the core reasons are along the lines of popular vote in terms of the demographics of where public sector workers tend to be concentrated relative to where the Tories aspire to gain votes. Brutal truth. Perfectly understandable. Thank you very much for that. But now let's put the panel on the spot instead of you. Liam, we'll start with you. Um, just on the public sector pension thing, because I made a, a documentary about public sector pensions uh, three years ago now, uh, which some people in the audience contributed to. Um, and in it, we discovered, uh, back then even, that 26% of council tax is now going on public sector pensions. And, of course, council tax is paid by pensioners. So I think the Tories should really um, focus their mind on the fact that there is, amongst the bulk of the population, the vast bulk, a huge sense of outrage about the growing pensions apartheid that we've got between feather-bedded public sector workers whose pension age uh, hasn't changed for decades and won't change for decades, despite the recent tweaks, uh, and the vast bulk of the population who's having to pay for these public sector pensions out of their council tax increasingly, because central government's trying to load the burden onto um, local government, even though their pensions are being denuded. So your progressive idea? My progressive idea is to, is to force public sector workers, a fifth of the population, to share their part of the demographic burden that all the rest of us are being forced to shoulder. But the chances of that happening are very low because I'm afraid everyone in this country that makes pension policy has one of these insulated, copper-bottomed public sector pensions. That is the brutal truth. And I fear, along with our, our questioner, that actually everybody who is not receiving a public sector pension knows somebody or has somebody in the family who is or might do, which makes it difficult. Jeremy, your progressive idea. Okay, thanks. Just to 
a brief comment on the ISA idea, if I may do. I think ISAs are wonderful. They're a wonderful uh, means for people to save, but, but unfortunately in a very voluntary way. They do rely on people deciding to save, and the, the, the really big issue we've got at the moment is that people don't decide to save or they decide not to save. The other issues with ISAs, and I speak from personal experience here, is that... Um, they're too accessible during a person's working life and there are too many good reasons why you should spend it. I myself moved house a few years ago and I used to have a regular ISA and I'd built up some money in there and then the choice was do I have a bigger mortgage and keep the ISA or do I spend the ISA and the right decision was actually spend the ISA money. So the the problem is it's not still there by the time pension age is reached. My big idea for progressive uh, action by government would be compulsion. Thank you very much. Thought it might be... David, I'm less worried about the the, uh, the private sector provision. I think you know people are just. I think people got houses, uh, which, which is a big store of wealth. Uh, I, I I come back to well Liam's point, uh, which is the, the public sector is the one we've got to worry about. Uh, I so my simple idea would would, would be to uh, reduce reduce their level of pensions and increase the age at which they retire. Um, to, to something that we can afford, um, which I think we simply can't uh, at the moment. It's a brave idea. It's been well, broached before, but uh, there seemed to be a bit of chickening out at the last minute, didn't uh, there? I, well, I did say in my thing I, that this is the one area I suspect that governments would find it very difficult to be, to be progressive about. Yeah. Uh, it's actually quite interesting to, to think about how this might really play out, because we'll probably end up uh, in a real crisis, um, probably for the uh, for the um, state's um, public finances, and we'll probably begin to see. We're already now at forty five percent, and uh, we may begin to see a real public sector, a public financing crisis building up. You know, standard, fifteen years standard time. Standard and Poor's agree with that, by the way. If you talk to Standard and Poor's and Moody's, who aren't, you know. These people aren't yoghurt munchers. They spend all days with their calculators. What's but wrong with yoghurt? They are, they, are, they are seriously concerned about the impact on the UK's credit rating within the next decade of these public sector pension liabilities. When do you think it might bite, David? Well, um, it, I think, I think uh, Liam got it right. Uh, it, we just have to look at the baby boom generation and they're beginning to... T- you know, the, the, the figure's beginning to come through. So I would have thought within 10 years, you're actually looking at some kind of... But it's all off uh, balance sheet, so it's OK. <laughs> it's, it's not included well, in the government's liabilities. Yes, but you've got to find the money. It becomes cash. I mean, the trouble yeah, is it's, be- it's going to become cash uh, within, within a decade. Uh, so I think probably because governments can't be progressive about this, there's too many votes to lose, um, as Michael just you know, pointed out. The progressive, idea, be the progressive idea is to actually get everyone aware that we are facing a huge <laughs> problem here and that actually some nasty things have got to happen if we don't want to walk straight into it. Thank you. Ros, progressive idea? Well, progressive idea is definitely what we need. Um, and there is a framework, which I can see, which would actually set us on the right road and currently we are really boldly marching in the wrong direction. I agree on the public sector pensions issue, by the way, um, and I would liken that to what we were saying in the 1990s about the unsustainable burdens of the generous state pensions being paid by our European competitors. We've just transferred that 
a few years down the line and put that burden into public sector pensions. But it's the same kind of problem. Uh, the state has taken on too, too many liabilities and at some point this will come back to bite us. The, the issue of timing, from around 2015 to 2020, there is a huge swathe of public sector employees who will be expecting to retire and be paid these state pensions. That's the time it kicks in. But as far as a progressive idea, we, we've heard about compulsion, we've heard about all these other um, pen, personal accounts and things. None of it, none of it can work unless we have a radical reform of the state pension in the UK. Roll up basic state pension and state second pension. Roll in these gimmicks which are so politically popular but so ludicrous when you think about it. Free TV licences, free you know, winter fuel allowances. If you live in Spain, you still get it. The, Gordon Brown said he wants to target public spending. And yet what does he do? He spends £3 billion giving people gimmicks that are worth much more to higher-rate taxpayers than anybody else. And yet the £7 billion that are spent on pension credit is undermining all the rest of the, of the pension system that we currently have. What we need to do is a flat-rate basic state pension. That's it. Everybody will know that's all you're going to get from the state. Almost everybody will want more than that, and then they will know that if they do want more, they've got to do something for themselves. And the financial services industry can come along with personal accounts or whatever else and say, look, if you want to live on £120 a week, that's fine, you'll get that. But if you want more, let us manage some of your money. Or think about working longer. The government won't penalise you for that. It's yours. But at the moment, you cannot give the message to anybody that it's safe to put money into a pension because pensions, as we were hearing about ISAs, you know, once you've put the money in, you can't get it back again. The government ultimately either takes money out of it, forces you to put money into an annuity or whatever later on. But it's a locked box. And if you want people to trust that box for 30 or 40 years, you've got to rebuild confidence. Thank you very much. And there's a, a progressive idea for your commission. Thanks. Right, next question, please, in the front row here. Uh, ben Atfield from uh, Elwood Natfield. Um, uh, Liam and David both mentioned uh, in your uh, 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 introductions um, uh, the idea of there being an elephant in the room, uh, something that hadn't been referred to. Um, uh, I've got another elephant that I've spotted. I wanted to kind of uh, see, whether you've, see whether you've noticed it as well. Um, uh, the discussion is about can government be progressive and to a certain extent um, there has been going through uh, uh, the different policy options that are available uh, and um, uh, David you basically uh, uh, you know we can work longer save more uh, smaller pensions or higher taxes um, that seems to be pretty much I'm not an expert in pensions I mean that's how I understand how the debate is, is, is framed um, the elephant is, isn't this debate couched in very narrow terms? And if we try and stand out of the immediacy of the kind of moment we find ourselves in, we could find different ways to try and explore an alternative to looking after ourselves in our old age. And the narrowness of the terms seems to be a very bleak or negative view of future productivity and future growth. If we thought that the British economy was able to grow 
to be more productive than it has been over the last 10, 20, 30 years, and therefore be able to generate greater growth, that would not only benefit the private sector, but also obviously increase the tax coming into the state. And that, that's a very simplistic approach. But if we did believe that, say, uh, British uh, productivity became the, the equivalent of America's, or British growth became, on average, the same as America's just over the last 20 years, my question is, if that was to happen, would we still be faced with a pension crisis? Is the elephant in the room that we don't believe it's possible to develop greater productivity and therefore greater growth? We accept that premise and then we just have to work within, with policy um, uh, options within a relatively bleak uh, uh, view of the productivity of the market economy. Well, a very quick run through the panel on that one. It does seem to me that uh, we can't rely on the elephant. That's the problem there, and it's a big risk. Liam? Um, I, don't, I think it's an interesting ob observation, but I don't actually think the problem at the moment, or even in, our, in my lifetime, will be a wealth problem. Um, it's a distribution problem, the problem, the pensions issue uh, that we face. Uh, it's a problem of people getting to retirement age, having saved nothing, and then throwing themselves on the state and all the rest of us. And that's why I think you need to compel people to save. And that isn't so draconian. You know, every advanced economy requires drivers to have third-party insurance. So if they crash into you, you don't end up paying for them through no fault of your own. Well, given the demography that we face... Why do we allow people to drive through their lives, fiscally crashing into the rest of us, and then when they reach retirement age, all the rest of us have to pay? I think your comments are predicated on the fact that there isn't enough money, there isn't enough wealth, there aren't enough investment returns around, and there won't be. I don't believe any of that. There is enough wealth, there are enough investment returns for an economy like the UK. It's just the way we're handing them out, and the fact that government policy is actively undermining the ability of small people, the vast bulk of the population, to get their share of the pot. So that's the problem. Thank you. Anybody on the panel want to add to that? Yeah, just a quick, just a quick mm -hmm. comment. I think for me it's a question of diversifying risk because I, what you say could turn out to be absolutely right. If, if, if we're very fortunate and economic growth is very high in the future, then maybe we could all rely on the state to, to, to pay our pensions. But on the other hand, it might not be. And I think that, that, that's where, for me, the private savings comes in and, and compulsion. Thank you. David? Well, very quick one on, on productivity. It's quite interesting. Um, I did something on, on the welfare-to-work system, and one of the most interesting things looking through that was how poor our skills are relative to, the, um, to our European competitors, certainly, actually, and to others as well. And, uh, and, and that's when you actually look through that, that does seem to be where our productivity gap with uh, other economies comes from. Uh, you know, we, we just don't seem to be able to apply capital uh, because we don't have adequate, uh, an adequate skill base. So if you want your productivity revolution so we can afford all that, I suspect we have got to worry a hell of a lot about um, re-equipping the people who are already in the workforce with skills, uh, which, which is one of the things Welfare to Work is looking at, and, uh, and, and then, again, back to the awful issue of, of our education system, which doesn't seem to be producing people of the right uh, calibre. And for 10 years we've had a Chancellor who's uh, been talking about improving productivity in the country, and I think relying on the fact that he's now Prime Minister to make it happen is a risk. 
Rose? Well, I think, as far as I'm concerned, um, if you really want to get radical and build in all of the ideas we've talked about today, you've got to rethink both pensions, in the way that I was saying, and retirement. Uh, this old-fashioned idea that there is any one age at which people are no longer fit to work <coughs> has to change. And actually, one of the things that you could do with this state pension, for example, uh, you know, a basic £120 a week, everybody gets it, but that's it. If you pay that, for example, from age 75, then you are immediately sending the signal out that before that age, people should be looking to work part-time. But there is a whole new phase of life out there waiting to be grasped. You don't need to stop work completely at age 65 or 60 or any other age. It depends how you are, what you can do. And again, that's the role of the employer to facilitate part-time work for older people, just like we did for working mothers 30 years ago. That would be a really progressive framework for moving forward. The idea that we can ever hope to save enough as a in the mass market to provide this thing called a pension that will give you a decent lifestyle for an increasingly long number of years if you retire at 65 and you live to 95 you cannot save enough during a working lifetime to do that you have to recognize that continuing to earn money in older age as long as you can society will support you if you can't but as long as you can has to be the key. And this Chancellor, sadly, the, the Prime Minister as he is now, has moved us so far away from where we need to be, given the demographics. We are heading for a period of long-term economic decline because we've got armies of people who have been incentivized to think about not working. And the public sector employment that has increased, again, non-productive employment, Thousands, tens of thousands of civil servants paid to dole out means-tested benefits to people or tax credits. This kind of thinking has to change. We have to reinvent the way we consider working and retiring. It's easier to contemplate working until you're 75 if you had a pleasant breakfast in the Commonwealth Club, and that's work. Um, I think for some people it's a fairly daunting prospect, but it's going to have to happen. Thank you. I have a question there at the back. David Ladapo, I own uh, and run a small business, and I'm pushing 40 and have no pension. And I'm interested in the vitriolic language uh, used by Liam, um, in particular his reference to um, feather-bedded and copper-bottomed public sector um, workers. I, um, in a previous life, was a hospital porter. I was also a university lecturer. Um, I find it very difficult to think of nurses and teachers and hospital porters as feather-bedded um, or copper-bottomed. And I wondered whether it would be easier to win the support of public sector workers um, for a change um, in the age at which they retire um, and also a wider change in their pension provision if they weren't paid such a pittance in the first place. Interesting question. Thank you. Can I suggest before you leave that you do have a word with Jeremy Ward since you're 40 and without a pension and he wouldn't want to see you go without that being seen too. Um, quick run through and I think it, it's a yes or no so we can move on to the next, next question. Should public sector workers be paid more, Ros? Public sector workers are now paid on average more than private sector workers. Absolutely. This, this idea that, that you know generous public sector pensions make up for low public sector pay is history. 
It doesn't exist anymore. And the last 10 years, we've had a complete change. But we're not suggesting you go back to being a hospital porter. Stick with the business. We need the productivity. Anybody disagree? Well, I mean, the other, the other thing about <laughs> nurses, for instance, is that they, retire, they can retire at 55. And, and that's the shocking thing. If they do uh, happen to live till 95, or actuarially, they like to live till 85, um, if they're female anyway. Uh, that is 30, 30 years. Uh, that is an incredible uh, um, time to, to support someone. And if they do retire at that age, they're probably going to be on between ten and 15,000 pension uh, a year. Um, that is a... Uh, you, who can do the sum very quickly? Uh, to, uh, Jeremy, you can do the sum. What's 15,000 over uh, uh, actuarially? What, how, what, what's the sum? A 4%, would you put it? A bit too early in the morning for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you will come back at, to that. At 4%, is it three quarters? It's quite a lot. <laughs> three quarters of a million. That's what, that's what we're giving every nurse who retires at 55. When you say that public sector workers are paid more than private sector workers, how do you come by that judgment? Controlling for what? Because that's what the ONS numbers say. Controlling for what? For their skill set, for their educational qualifications? No, they're the average numbers from ONS data. Compared with before. Look it up. Average average public sector pay is now higher than average private sector pay. And has been for two years. Presumably one has to control for the educational qualifications the public sector workers have. What do you mean? For example, a teacher being paid £24,000 a year compared to a A a first-year qualified solicitor getting paid £80,000 Public sector teachers versus private sector teachers. But, I mean, the the relative comparison is just that 10 years ago they they were paid substantially less. And now they're they're paid £2,000 more. That's the the movement. That's in take-home pay. The the value of their final salary pension from the state is worth 25 to 30 percent even more we need to move on can i just can i just say something and i i I promise not to be vitriolic um not only is average public or average public sector wages higher than average private sector wages public sector workers get more sick leave more flexible working more benefits in kind uh, as, the, as you can see from my name, I'm uh, from an immigrant family. It's families like mine who have propped up the NHS for years, so I, I bow to no one um, in, 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 in that sense. But what I would say is this. If you're a journalist like me, but you also happen to be a qualified economist, and you talk to very senior people in the world's leading ratings agencies who tell you that your country is about to fall off a fiscal cliff, and then no one listens to you, you tend to get a bit vitriolic. Enough vitriol. A question over there, please. Um, Brendan Paddy from the charity Age Concern. Um, one quick point pointing in one direction and one question perhaps pointing in another. Um, it was mentioned in passing that uh, one thing the government has done is address uh, the serious imbalance faced by women and carers, and I'd like to suggest that that's perhaps something they deserve slightly more credit for, even though perhaps they've deferred actually bringing it in, and uh, we'd very much like, obviously, a date on that. That would be lovely. Um, But secondly, in a question to the panel, uh, there's been a number of uh, suggestions that people need the ability to work uh, longer. Many people are indeed willing to work longer, both because they want to and also because they need to. Um, But while we have a mandatory retirement age, which means many employees are thrown out on their air at 65, whether they are willing and able to work or not, um, it's rather difficult, isn't it, not to suggest to people that they should work longer to fund their pensions. I think companies are now obliged to allow people to work beyond 65 if they want to. 
I'm a director of the Age Employment Network and we've pressed incredibly hard to not have this age 65 cut off. But unfortunately, um, the business lobby won, the political lobby over, overcame what I think is the common sense um, approach, which is companies should have to justify why they want to get rid of you at any age. It should be dependent upon your competence, not upon your chronological age. So far, the government resisted it. I suspect that they will revisit those uh, age requirements. Just from the point of view of women and carers, though, I feel I must stress that the reforms that the government has just announced to the state pension do not, do not properly take care of women and carers. They've replaced one set of arbitrary qualification criteria with a different set of qualification criteria in the state pension. So, yes, they've made some progress, but the only way to properly include women and carers, in my view, is to have this so-called citizen's pension, where every woman and carer is recognised as having given the equivalent contribution to society as someone who's been in the waged labour force. And therefore, they all are entitled to this amount from the state that they can get but it's not enough to have a decent lifestyle, it's enough to give you the basic minimum so that when and if women can afford to save, which obviously by not being in the wage labour force or earning less than men will be uh, somewhat less than men, they won't be penalised for that later. We are not in that situation right now. Makes great sense. Can we just go back to our question of it? So is age concern managing to compile evidence of how many people are asking to stay on beyond 65 and being refused? We don't have statistics. What we do have is an excellent range of examples where people have proven to be very capable. There are indeed some industries where at 65 people are at the very peak of their game, academia, academia perhaps being a good example, um, and nonetheless they are being forced to retire, regardless of their productivity, regardless of their capability. We're not saying that people should not be forced to retire if they are not capable of doing the job. But that, that should apply to anybody of any age. Um, that's the problem. Thank you very much. Can we take three more questions? David Henke, um, <coughs> political journalist from The Guardian, who also covers trade union affairs as well uh, from time to time. But I, I've got a question about another elephant in the room that's only a straw in the wind, which is a real mixed metaphor, <laughs> but nevertheless. Um, in my coverage of trade union affairs, below the, but the posturing and the political rhetoric, there have been two interesting developments as regards pension funds that I'd quite like a comment on. At the Unison conference, uh, the union passed a resolution to launch a full training program for their reps to sit on pension fund boards. And in a rather interesting thing, City Financier meets Binman, fringe meeting, they brought in a chap from Hermes to talk about how, because the local government scheme is, of course, funded as opposed to a state yeah. thing, how they can be involved. The second strong win is rather more curious. Unite, the biggest union in Britain, is negotiating to merge with the US-Canadian uh, Union of Steelworkers. When this happens, they will bring a banker <laughs> because this union and an American sort of can-do attitude whereby the uh, union employs bankers to get together with pension funds, investors and others to modernise 
companies to get a better return. Now, this you wouldn't expect from the you know general thing, but I'd be really interested because this is a this is going on under this is an undercurrent, and I hope you know, and is something I think needs to be watched. May I also add? I shouldn't really say this. Your splendid article in the Sunday Telegraph City page was nearly life-changing in this good way it explained for someone like me who's coming up to pensions all the options that are available under annuities and whoever did that it actually got through to a layman like me on all the options there but I shouldn't really plug from another paper but occasionally other papers get it right Thank you very much. Can we take this question and and then come back? Stephen Yeo from Watson Wyatt Um, There's been quite a lot of talk about particular issues we don't like, we don't like means testing, we don't like public sector pensions, we don't like the low state pension, and I mean I've done my fair share of it over the the years, but the wording of the the motion we're talking about tonight is quite quite, uh, more optimistic, can governments be progressive? And I wonder if members of the panel would share with me um, uh, appreciation for the major achievement of Turner's Pension Commission, which was he broke the mould on talking about raising state pension age. Until his report came out, none of the political parties, despite the fact they all realised it was part of the policy, none of them would admit to it being it. Within half a day of his report being published, all three major political parties came out in support of it. Pause for thought here. If Turner's Commission could do that, maybe that's the route for governments to be progressive on pensions, because there's an innate conflict between government's natural wish to get re-elected in three, four, five years' time and the long-term planning needed for pensions, and Turner helped find their way through that. Very good point. Thank you, sir. One more. Uh, Ian King, business editor of The Sun. Uh, Most of the panel appeared to go along with the view that compulsion is necessary. I wonder if the panel have any specific recommendations on how this compulsion should take place, by what sort of mechanism. Would you, for example, have a hypothecated tax? Would you recalibrate national insurance? and what magnitude of uh, extra taxation would be required in in this. Thank you very much. Well, we've got three really interesting points there. Um, Shareholder activism on behalf of unions. I think we're certainly seeing more shareholder activism generally. Um, Praise for Turner, and perhaps we need an independent commission to sort out pensions. Uh, It was a good thing that they gave Turner his peerage before he reported, otherwise we might not have got something (laughs) quite as radical. Um, And then how actually do we achieve compulsion? Ros, let's start with you. Well, starting with the compulsion issue, I certainly am not in favour of compulsion. Uh, Compulsion is, in my view, nothing more than a tax. We already have compulsion in the national insurance system, which is the most regressive tax that we have in this country and needs to be reformed. If you have the state only giving a basic minimum, there is no reason why the state should force people to have to save. It's up to them. If they want to work longer, the state should facilitate more part-time work at older ages. But compelling people to save, I think, in my view, is not going to sort it out because you'll make people believe that they're doing something that will give them a good pension later. But we all know that for most people on average earnings, saving a few percent of their income while they are working and can actually afford it when they're not mortgaged or student-debted out is not going to deliver the kind of pension that people currently expect. As far as um, state pension age and an independent commission is concerned, yes, I think we do need to take this issue out of the political arena because it's become increasingly obvious that politicians cannot be trusted with pensions. They are looking at 
the short term, not the long term. A politician's idea of success, it seems, in pensions policy is being able to spin the headline to say that they've done something meaningful, either in reforming the state pension or in encouraging people to contribute to pensions. Neither of those things is actually going to prove successful in the long term, in my view, but we've had headlines that claim credit for it. Of course, a cynic might say a politician's view of success in pensions is what he gets when he retires, which is actually quite a lot at the moment. David? Um, I'd like to agree with Roz on the compulsion issue. Uh, I, 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 can't, I think it's such a subtle mix uh, for each individual in terms of, uh, of how much money they want to retire with, how long they want to work, um, how much arm twisting they can do to get someone else to pay them. But I, I, I think compulsion uh, you know, is, a, is effectively a tax and it should be something that people decide. I, so I wouldn't go with that. Um, it may be uh, Stephen's point, can one has an, have another uh, commission uh, to look at, I mean, which, what I would call the main issue is, is, is getting the public sector more realistic. Um, that may be, I mean, it is very interesting, as I said, I've just gone through this experience. It's quite a brutal experience writing these uh, independent reports, even if you're not a lord. Um, and the, but but I think the, the what it does allow you to do is is to kind of just um, get rid of all of the preconceptions and just start again with all the data in front of you and just try and write down a coherent um, thing because what governments seem to find very hard to do and the most interesting thing about my own experience on the welfare to work was uh, within the departments you know there were lots of experts but they never really talked to each other. And so someone sitting down taking a helicopter view and trying to grab it all and trying to make it work together and the particular thing that I was looking at, you know, skills and getting people to work were completely separated. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that it may be possible in the pensions area to do something similar because, you know, the expertise is, is, is around just to kind of uh, grip it and try and make it a bit more coherent. And I'm actually, I, I'm very, uh, you know, the things that Ros is saying, that the simplicity concept, just, you know, there's a simple... Uh, you know, this is this is the, what you get from the state. Anything else, sort it. Uh, I think is very attractive. Are you volunteering? <laughs> Not here. And then David's uh, point about um, about what's happening with unions. I think the unions are, are going to be split. They've got two issues. Clearly, to the extent that they're doing contributory. Uh, pensions, they've got to get sophisticated and worry about the performance of their funds uh, to the extent that they are looking after the interests of their employers on unfunded schemes they're going to take a very backward uh, position so the, there's going to be quite a degree of schizophrenia I would suspect in the union movement about this issue Thank you David, it, it seems that we have got a split panel on compulsion and it's happened geographically um, Jeremy? Yeah, I'm, actually, I'm not sh sure that we have got that splitter panel because I, I, I agree with most of what Ros says. I think, for me, the issue over compulsion is that if the state were to give a, a basic state pension, something along the lines of, say, a citizen's pension, which ensured that everybody at, um, in retirement had a level of pension which kept them off the, off po out of poverty and avoided the need for the means-tested benefit, then, yeah, there's no need for compulsion. But where we seem to be going is there's no sign whatsoever of that fundamental overhaul of the state system. We still have 
means testing with us in a very big way for a very long time. And I think because of the interaction of means testing, the disincentive to save that means testing provides, then you need compulsion in that environment. But actually, there's not a big disagreement there, I don't think. The points that Stephen made about being progressive on pension and, and Turner, again, I would, I'd be quite supportive of that and certainly supportive of the, of the suggestions that Turner made about increasing the state pension. I think everybody agreed that that was necessary just because of the way the demographics had changed. I think Turner, again, his vision was to have a, a basic level of state pension which, made, which meant that you didn't need to save, but if you didn't save, you would, you would be, you'd be able to survive in, in retirement but no more. You wouldn't live in any great luxury. And then the savings element on top of that was some kind of earnings-related pension to maintain a lifestyle. He made it very clear, Turner made it very clear, that, he, that this was not a, um, a recipe from which you could pick and mix. And I think, unfortunately, what the government have done is pick and mixed. Um, and they've got means testing still with us for a very long time at a far greater level than, level than Turner ever envisaged. That's the issue for me. That's why compulsion has to be looked at. The questions that David raised about greater trade union involvement in in their pensions, I think, for me, anything that gets trade unions and individuals more engaged and involved with running their pensions and more understanding of the way that it's all working is an excellent move very much in the right direction because it's because people haven't been engaged with it and because they haven't understood what's happened that we've had and, and people have been making decisions that they haven't understood the significance of that we've got in, many, in, in some of the terrible situations that we have, which, which we've talked about earlier. Thanks, Jeremy. Liam? Um, on David's... I won't tease him about his uh, Telegraph Guardian loving. Um, David describes the, the ongoing dogfight between capital and labour when it comes to pensions. That will continue. I'm not as complacent as David um, about private sector pensions, yes, the deficit figure has reduced drastically, but the market's close to a decade high, and it's pretty fragile. Um, uh, And also, within that deficit figure, there are hundreds of thousands of tragic stories about people who have lost and will lose, even though they don't even know it, their private sector pension entitlement. And also, within that deficit figure, there is a whole generation of people, and then a whole generation of people to follow them, who have very, very little firm-based pension provision at all. So I think underneath that deficit figure, there are uh, very large um, uh, financial problems. On Turner, Turner's analysis was world-class. The Turner report, for me, uh, as a long-standing student of pension policy, puts in one place everything you need. That's never been done before. Chapeau. Um, On the other hand is diagnosis... Um, was mostly right in my view, um, particularly Pillar 1, the basic state pension. He did change the political weather, as Stephen has suggested. I have my problems with the MPSS, as I've said. But even his Pillar 1 diagnosis, we don't know if it's going to be implemented. Let's be completely clear about what's on the face of the bill that's going through Parliament. We don't know. So how can a financial advisor advise anyone anything? On compulsion... um, it can't be part of NICS because NICS has been completely denuded uh, by successive politicians and by the ongoing use of higher rate tax relief, which costs well over 10 billion quid a year, as Ros has often pointed out. But I do think among in the pubs and clubs and working men's clubs of the UK, there is so much fear about pensions that's often expressed as apathy, but it's actually 
fear and resignation that if you said to people, if you put in between 5 and 10% of your income into a lockbox that no one will mess with, you will benefit from compound interest, then I actually think it could turn out to be a really popular policy for a radical reforming government because you'll take that problem away from people, which is where most people want it. They want it taken away from them. They just want to know that their money is going to be there and they're not going to be completely ripped off. And it seems to me total madness, given the demography that we face, that as a country, as a generation, we are putting so little money into investments for future pensions. We cannot afford to pay for our old age out of, increasingly as we are, current taxation. We have to benefit from what Maynard Keynes called the awesome power of compound interest. And as a country, our grandchildren will look back and think, what was this generation thinking that we've got a savings rate below 3%? Well, that seems an appropriate note on which to end. Thank you, Liam. It's a brave politician that tells the public that he's going to take another 5 to 10% of their income, but we shall see. Thank you all for coming along. We promised to wind up by quarter to 10, so we failed, but we've had some really good questions, and I think the panel have really done their best to come up with some progressive thoughts that we might send away to the new pensions minister. So on your behalf, I'd like to thank them all for coming along this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much.